Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Beyond the Pearls podcast, based on the Morning Report series from Elsevier. This podcast has been adapted for audio in collaboration with series editor Dr. Raj Dasgupta, as well as the volume editor for each book. Each episode features an in-depth case dissection format and aims to deliver practical, concise, and easy-to-digest information. And now, here's today's episode. So when we talk about the neuroscience of sleep, okay, we got our cerebral cortex over here. We got the thalamus. Underneath the the thalamus is the the hypothalamus. And we have many, many, many different areas of the brain that secrete many different neurotransmitters. And of course, one thing I hate about any board exam, you do kind of have to memorize which stinks, but we'll try to make it a little bit fun. But we'll talk about these areas in the brain and what they're going to secrete and how do they influence. So when we talk about the alerting, the arousing neurotransmitters, what makes you awake? What generates wakefulness? It's called the reticular activating system. So it's a system of things that are going to be put together. And the main thing I want you to realize is that I said it's all about, you know, connecting the brainstem to the cortex, brainstem to the cortex. That's really what the reticular activating system does. And within this reticular activating system, there are all these different areas that secrete uh, neurotransmitters and hormones that will help you stay awake. So what are going to be some of the important ones? When I think about staying awake, there are two main categories of neurotransmitters. There are monoamines, dopamine and norepinephrine, and then there is your cholinergics. And when we talk about the cholinergics, the main neurotransmitter for a, a cholinergic would be acetylcholine. So we have our basal forebrain, it's a lot of acetylcholine, and acetylcholine is always a great question for anyone's board for one reason. Not only is acetylcholine keeping us awake, it's also the predominant neurotransmitter in REM, and I'll say that a bunch of times. The lateral hypothalamus secretes uh, hypocretin. Hypocretin is an alerting neurotransmitter. It's uh, the neurotransmitter that when you're missing it, uh uh-oh, you may have narcolepsy, but Hypocretin is a very important neurotransmitter to realize. So alerting is acetylcholine, alerting is hypocretin. The locus cerulis secretes norepinephrine. The tubular mammillary bodies secrete histamine, which is an alerting neurotransmitter. And that's why when you take antihistamines like diphenhydramine or Unisom, if you're talking about brand names over the counter, that they make you sleepy because they inhibit histamine. And of course, we think about dopamine. Uh, ventral tegmental area. I know everyone memorizes the substantia nigra. That's okay. Also, they all secrete dopamine and that's an alerting neurotransmitter. 
And then the dorsal uh, nucleus of Raffae will actually secrete uh, serotonin, which has, there are many, 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 many different 5-HT receptors in the brain, but in general, serotonin is a learning neurotransmitter. So these all keep you awake are all part of the reticular activating system that connects the brainstem to the cortex. So how do you generate sleep? Sleep, we, we go into non-REM sleep, and it all starts off in the hypothalamus. And in the hypothalamus, there's one area called the VLPO, which is actually going to be the sleep switch that actually goes from wake to non-REM sleep. And there are two neurotransmitters that are going to be secreted from there. One is going to be GABA, and that's the one I would know for everyone taking the boards. The other neurotransmitter for sleep is galanine, but there's really not much clinical to it, but you should know that both actually will induce non-REM sleep. So what happens is, is that when it's time to go to bed and time to sleep, you go into non-REM, that GABA inhibits all these amines, norepinephrine, dopamine, histamine, a serotonin, and the cholinergic, which is acetylcholine. It also inhibits hypocretin. So if you're inhibiting all these things, well, then you're, you're going to go to sleep. And then other things that will aid in sleep, the basal forebrain secretes uh, adenosine. And we said adenosine builds up during the day. And adenosine is something that gives you that pressure to sleep. And just to note, I mentioned that just when we look at an EEG, the thalamus secretes uh, makes these sleep spindles. But sleep is GABA, galanine, and adenosine. Now REM, I will say that there's REM on cells, how when you start having REM, then what turns REM off. So what did I mention earlier is that acetylcholine from back here loves not only to keep you awake, but it actually is the big thing when we talk about REM sleep. And when we talk about uh, where most of these REM cells, they're in the ponds. They're in places I hate memorizing called the LDT, the lateral dorsal tegmental, and the PPT, the pendicular ocular pon oculopontine areas. And they secrete these cholinergics. So there are cells that secrete these acetylcholine that help out in the ponds for awake. And there are ones that secrete um, acetylcholine for REM sleep, but REM on acetylcholine. REM off, you can imagine all these neurotransmitters that will make you awake, like serotonin, norepinephrine, dopamine, histamine, all these will turn off your REM sleep. So in summary of all that, to keep it really simple, acetylcholine, once again, for wakefulness and for REM, monoamines, dopamine, norepinephrine, histamine, they're increased because they're wakefulness. You don't see any of those in REM and they're reduced in non-REM. Hypocretin, definitely in alerting, increased, reduced both in non-REM and REM. And GABA and its friend galanine definitely make you sleepy and we see them in non-REM sleep. They're increasing non-REM sleep. And I just put a little in words where some of the key buzzwords for anyone's boards, pulmonary and sleep. Technically speaking, the most, the most, uh, the main CNS exciting neurotransmitter is glutamate, though we don't talk about it. I just wanted to mention that. GABA is an inhibitory neurotransmitter. Glycine, when we talk about REM sleep, what makes you paralyzed in REM sleep? You know, it's going to be using glycine and it's an inhibitory neurotransmitter in the spinal cord that causes that REM atonia. Can't mention enough, acetylcholine is not only for wake, but in REM sleep. Adenosine builds up when we talk about that homeostatic drive. I mentioned about it's inhibited by caffeine. And hypocretin, nowadays, it's a very hot neurotransmitter because 
Not only is it low in people with narcolepsy, there are medications for insomnia called DORAs, dual orexin receptor antagonists, that are used for insomnia. So with that being said, let's talk about obstructive sleep apnea. When we talk about symptoms, well, I think it's important to realize, are we talking about pediatrics? Are we talking about adults? Are we talking about women? Are we talking about men? Because they all present a little bit differently. Some of the key things that I think about obstructive sleep apnea, you could think about secondary enuresis, frequent urination, daytime sleepiness is probably the most common thing that people complain about as far as symptoms. Morning headaches, they can present with night sweats, moodiness, impaired memory, weight gain, of course, snoring, all these things could be some of the signs and symptoms. And when we talk about associated, and I think that's one of the key words to remember about OSA is that what is not the causality, but what is it associated with? And a heart attack, stroke, pulmonary hypertension, AFib, Alzheimer's, memory, motor vehicle accidents, you know, all these things, there's associations when we talk about obstructive sleep apnea. So with this being said, this is a good one. Um, I'm just gonna, I'll read it, then one of the fellows could just jump in there and answer it. So with regards to the American Academy of Sleep Medicine, AASM scoring guidelines, which of the following statements regarding scorings of hypopnea is true? Uh, is it the preferred flow signal for scoring hypopneas is the thermistor signal? Is the recommended rule for scoring hypopneas require at least a 4% oxygen desaturation? Arousals are required for scoring hypopneas by the recommended hypopnea definition. Uh, the duration of 30% drop in signal excursion is greater than 10 seconds. So which is going to be true? I don't have my camera set up. So one of the fellows, just speak up. Anyone? I think it's maybe D because it needs to be more than 30% for more than 10 seconds, but there needs to be a D sat after two. So it doesn't really say that part. And then the recommended rule, there's also like the 3% rule and the 4% rule. So I'm not sure if it's either of those. I don't think you need arousal because that'd be more like a re-raw. So I think it's, I would pick D, but I'm not sure. So the first one's always a classic one that when we talk about hypopneas in itself, we use what we call the pressure transducer. And we'll go over that in a second. This is the thermistor used for obstructive apneas. And when we talk about the recommended rule for scoring hypopneas, you know, this 4% DSAT is something that we like to call the Medicare rule, a 1B rule. And it's not the recommended rule for scoring, especially from the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. And we'll go over the criteria for scoring hypopneas together. C, the arousals are required, you know, for scoring hypopneas by the hypopnea definition. No, they're not required for scoring. What is going to be the, mo the answer here that's going to be the, the most correct is the duration is going to be 10 seconds. There's going to be a 30% drop when we talk about it. And let me show it to you. Here's going to be the pressure transducer. Here's the thermal sensor. Apneas, obstructive apneas, you think about the thermal sensor. If you don't have a thermal sensor, you can use the pressure transducer as a backup. You can reuse inductive plasmatography as a backup. For hypopneas, they prefer using the pressure transducer. Doesn't work, you can use the thermistor as a backup. But the key thing is duration. It has to be 10 seconds. So awesome job when we talk about that question. Anakit, who do you want to do the next one? So before I read it, who's going to do it? Defong. Defon, cool. 67-year-old man with snoring and witness apneas undergoes an evaluation for sleep apnea. He has a level three home sleep apnea test, uh, you know, which is a, we call it HSAT. 
Which of the following is the correct calculation? Oh, nice one for the respiratory event index. We call that the RDI. So if I want to calculate the RDI in a home sleep study to fong, which of these seems like the right answer? Is it A, apneas plus hypopneas divided by the total sleep time? B, apneas plus hypopneas plus raras divided by total sleep time? C, apneas plus hypopneas divided by total recording time? Or D, apneas plus hypopneas plus raras divided by total recording time? Defong, can you just kind of work through this with me? Yeah, RDI. And, and Defong, don't be angry at Anakin for picking you. You know he was. I mean, that was a given, almost. So, RDI. So, <laughs> I'm debating between so your AHI. I'm, is that the same thing as RDI? I'm debating between A and respiratory-related related arousals divided by total sleep time. I'm going to go with yep, yep. B. Awesome. All right. So, you know, when I look at this, this is a home sleep study. One of the, the limitations of a home sleep study is you really can't calculate, per se, total sleep time because you really do need that EEG to initiate when you do sleep. When I think about what is a home okay, sleep study, me, <laughs> when I think about a home sleep study, it really tells me total recording time. So A is going to be wrong to Fong. When we think about B, you know, respiratory-related arousals, once again, to, to really score an arousal, you got to be in an in-lab study to, to define an arousal based upon EEG criteria. You really can't do that with a home sleep study. So B is wrong. When I go down to D, you know what I mean? Once again, it's a home sleep study. It can't we really do the RARAs part of it, but I love the total recording time. So even though the terminology for an HSAT, when I rescore these studies, it says RDI, it's really just the apneas plus hypopneas divided by the total recording time. And this is actually the type of home sleep studies we use here at USC. And that's a, all these questions were fair game when we talk about the pulmonary boards. Defong, do you want to pick the next person who does this? Yeah, let's go to Chinoy. Uh, all right. So which of the following is true regarding clinical risk factors for OSA Chinoy? Women are more likely to present with snoring and witness apneas than daytime fatigue and mood disturbances. B, obesity is associated with anterior posterior collapse of the upper OA. C, there is less association with sleep symptoms among older adults compared to middle-aged adults. D, there is a stronger association between BMI and OSA among Asian patients compared to patients in Western countries. And E, a longer thyromental distance is an increased risk for obstructive sleep apnea. Chinoy, what do you feel? C. D is in dog? C is in dog. <laughs> <laughs> you three are like the biggest troublemakers, like in the whole world, I swear to God. All right. So women are actually, they, when they would present with obstructive sleep apnea, they don't have the classic symptoms that we always think about. They actually may present with symptoms of depression or mood disturbance. So A are actually going to be wrong, that they're not going to have those classic, I'm snoring and witness apneas. We may have to think about different questions if we want to screen them appropriately. Obesity, uh, Chinoy, is not an anterior-posterior collapse. What kind of collapse does obesity give you? Uh, circumferential. A little more lateral, you know what I mean? But it, it may do a circumferential, okay. Uh, and it's not really a longer thyromental distance that increases you for OSA. It's a what? Shorter, right? Shorter, like when you when you guys folks are intubating people. So it really comes down to, you know, uh, C and D. And, you know, in my Asian patients, it really isn't the BMI. It's really going to be their anatomy of the upper airways that we do see a, a lot of Asian individuals who unfortunately have OSA. So it's not just the BMI. 
But I put this here because it's very important that, you know, that when we talk about older adults as we get older, that, you know, there's a less association with symptoms. They're not going to present with, I have the worsening daytime sleepiness, you know, when we talk about the older adults compared to younger when we talk about OSA. So the answer here is going to be C. And this is going to be very important because many of my slides we're going to talk about for treatment mean how aggressive do we want to be when we talk about treating older adults? Oh, and this is my parents, everyone, older adults, my dad, my mom, and this good looking person is me right here. All right. So when you talk about sleep apnea scoring, obstructive sleep apnea, everyone, this is why we put those questions there because, you know, what's the definition? Sensation of airflow greater than 90%. The thermal sensor is used, 10 seconds duration, but O2 DSAT is not part of the definition. When we talk about hypopneas, obstructive hypopneas, there are two main criteria. I always think of the 1A as A for AASM. This is going to be flow is going to be decreased uh, more than 30%. There's going to be a 3% decrease in oxygenation, or you could do an arousal, and it needs to last 10 seconds. 1B is what we call Medicare scoring. And the big difference here is gonna be, there's no scoring to the arousal and it's a 4% uh, desaturation, okay? And RARAs, I mean, we always even question if RARAs even exist anymore, but you know, they last 10 seconds and they don't meet the criteria for an apnea or a hypopnea. So when we talk about sleep apnea diagnosis, everyone, you know, in the olden, olden, olden days, we used to think that overnight oximetry used to be a good screening test for sleep apnea. But nowadays, I'll, I'll be the first to say if you suspect sleep apnea based upon your stop bang score or Berlin questionnaire, that I'm just going to order a sleep study. I'm not going to mess around with an O2 sat. When do I think about doing an oxygen desaturation? Maybe if someone has obstructive sleep apnea is on a CPAP or a non-invasive device. And I want to know if their patient's hypoxic on top of that. I may do a home sleep study, or I'm sorry, a a home oxygenation desaturation study. But the gold standard for diagnosing obstructive sleep apnea is polysomography. That is the gold standard. Poly means many, somography means measurements. What are we measuring? ECG, EEG, EMG, oxygen. Looking for CO2 is not mandatory based upon the AASM, especially in adults, but you can if you want. Sometimes we offer split night studies where half the night is diagnostic, half the night is treatment. And, you know, anytime they say central sleep apnea, I worry about central sleep apnea. If I had a home sleep study first, I like to confirm it, especially in adults uh, with a in-lab PSG. And based upon, you know, a sleep study, whether it's home or in-lab PSG, based upon how many uh, apneas, hypopneas you have per hour, I'll write it as mild. You have an HI of 5 to 15, moderate 15 to 30, severe greater than 30. This is going to be a shot of a type 1 in-lab polysomography. You have the EEGs up here, the, uh, the, the eye leads, the uh, E1 and E2. You have the essential EEG leads, which are going to be the frontal, occipital, and the central. And we have a snore channel and EMG on the chin. Sometimes we'll put them on the legs and arms. We worry about like movement disorders. And then we think about, you know, looking for effort and flow down below. And in this case, this person has an obstructive apnea and this so happens to be REM sleep. So home sleep studies, we're using it more and more. It helps out reducing first side effect about being in a strange place. There are definitely some advantages for uh, including if for transportation and cost and 
patient's circadian rhythm and when they fall asleep and when they wake up. So there are definitely many benefits of doing a home sleep study, but the gold standard is always going to be an in-lab PSG. There are many types of home sleep study devices. You know, closer to a type one, you're going to have more channels. So type two has seven channels. Type three, which is what we use here at USC, has four channels. Type four devices we don't commonly use has less channels. And there's also something called PAT, which is peripheral arterial tonography, which is also an FDA approved home sleep study device. So we use the apnea link here at USC. It's a type three home sleep study device. This in fact has five channels. We are using respiratory effort, pulse ox, oxygen saturation, O2 flow and snoring, the pulses for the heart rate. And this is the watch pad. And it's another way that we could score obstructive. And it also got FDA approved for central apnea. So I question that sometimes. There are disposable watch pad devices. And the main take home message is that PAT stands for peripheral arterial tone. So there is an algorithm that is based upon sympathetic surge that will uh, correlate heart rate and blood pressure in making the diagnosis of obstructive sleep apnea. Key things to remember that if you're on an alpha 1 blocking drug for your prostate, this may not be the study for you. If you have bad atherosclerosis, this might be the study for you. So, with that being said, Chinoy, who do you want to do this question? Chris. All right, Chris, let me read it. 60-year-old uh, moderately obese man is referred to the sleep clinic for long-standing uh, snoring and excessive daytime sleepiness with no significant cardiovascular respiratory comorbidity. The patient averages seven to eight hours of unrefreshing sleep per night with associated morning headaches a witness, and witness apneas. I put that bolded red. The Epworth score, wow, is 16. His color size is 17 in a male and he is observed to have a small mandibular size. A home sleep apnea test shows the following, and it showed a total recording time of 480 minutes. 13 obstructive apneas, hypopneas were 21. The HI was 4.1. The mean sat was 91. The low two sat was 81. Below 90% oxygen saturation for 15 minutes. Based upon this result and this patient, which of the following is the best recommendation based upon the information I gave you? Is it A, repeat the home sleep apnea testing, B, attend an in-lab polysomography, C, uh, empiric autotitrating PAP, or D, supplemental oxygen during sleep? Chris, what do you think? He said B, he doesn't have a microphone. Uh, okay. In this case, I think this goes back to what I was talking about already, is that in this person, if we did a stop-bang score, which tells you their risk of developing sleep apnea is at low, moderate, or high. There's something called the Berlin score that my sleep fellow should know about. Is it low, moderate, or high pretest probability? It, she, the patient has a very high pretest probability, and your HI is 4.1. That doesn't make a lot of sense to me. And the answer is you got to go for the gold standard. It's not repeating the home study. It's not just, you know, number one, you won't get it covered. Just give them auto-titrating PAP. And there's really not an indication here just to start supplemental auction, especially if there's a sleep apnea, obstructive sleep apnea needs to be addressed. This patient needs to attend an in-lab study to confirm the diagnosis. And that's why in broad stroke, if you ask me when you're rotating with me in sleep, when do we do a home sleep study? High pretest probability. When do I do an in-lab study? A low pretest probability. Good. So let's talk about some of the physiology of obstructive sleep apnea in our, in our remaining time. And I got to tell you, where did the time go? I mean, I blinked my eyes and like, boom, oh my God. So 
when we talk about obstructive sleep apnea, I put this here not because I'm the biggest Star Wars fan in the whole world, but because I think when I did my training that we always stereotype what obstructive sleep apnea looks like. Overweight truck driver eating Cool Ranch Doritos and a Choco Taco, you know, but it's more than like that. People with obstructive sleep apnea, they look like you, literally you and me. So we need to think outside the box. So what is some of the physiology here of obstructive sleep apnea? And why did I put this here? Because there I saw those on the pulmonary boards, you know. So when we talk about obstructive sleep apnea, it's about patency of the upper airway, right? And there are basically two physiological concepts that will be important when we talk about why do we get closure of the upper airway. These two physiological concepts are called the Bernoulli principle and Venturi effect. So let's talk about the Venturi effect first, and then let's talk about the Bernoulli principle and why not everyone has to be looking like Jabba the Hutt to get obstructive sleep apnea. So Venturi effect means that when you have an area that has a very small radius compared to a bigger radius, you I mean I think about the garden hose once again, when you put your thumb on the end of a garden hose, it shoots out. So what happens is in the narrowed area right here, you're gonna increase velocity, increase speed. And when you have that increase in velocity and speed, what happens to pressure, it decreases. So things are moving faster, so it's not pushing things out. So imagine this area being the area of collapse in someone with OSA, this air moving through that obstructed area is to have a very fast velocity, but there's not enough pressure to open up the airway. That's called the Venturi effect. That kind of parlays itself into something called the Bernoulli principle. And what is the Bernoulli principle? is let me just kind of describe the analogy behind it. So one of my favorite places to go to eat is In-N-Out Hamburger. I always love uh, Double Double Animal Style with French fries, chocolate shake. And what happens is when I'm like sipping the chocolate shake, it's always all thick. And what happens to the straw when you sip the chocolate shake, it kind of what? It like collapses because that's the Bernoulli principle which is basically as you increase that velocity over here, it creates a suction to suck in the walls. And that's what happens with OSA. Another analogy of that is this door right here. And I don't know if you guys and girls ever had that where, you know, you're going to bed and the door's kind of creaked open a little bit. Then all of a sudden, like the air conditioner or something kicks in and the door just what? Slams shut. And you're like, whoa. So these are kind of like practical things we see all the time that use the Bernoulli principle. And this is why when we talk about obstructive sleep apnea, it's really a combination of the Venturi effect and Bernoulli principles that gives you that closure of the upper airway. And let me just talk about this before we uh, say goodbye, is that this is classic pulmonary physiology. This is a Starling resistor model. And when we talk about obstructive apnea, well, we love to use the term the P-crit, which is the critical closing pressure. So this is the pressure upstream. This is the pressure downstream. This is the thick neck right here. And here's the lumen where it's the collapsible segment. So what you want is the pressure in the lumen, whether it's upstream or downstream, to be stronger than the closing pressure, which is the thick neck right here. When the P-crit is stronger than the pressure in the lumen, you get a close. And when we talk about the three zones, this is almost similar to like west zones of the lung, just to throw a pulmonary analogy out there, that what happens is, is that when the pressure in the lumen is stronger than the P-crit, nice flow, everyone is happy. If the pressure is actually stronger in the P-crit than in the downstream pressure, you get a collapse over here, kind of like a hypopnea. But if the P-crit is stronger than both the upstream and downstream pressure, 
you're totally occluded, and that's what we call an apnea itself. Now, it's 9.31. I am a little teary-eyed, but it actually worked out well that we're going to start talking about treatment. So we're going to pick up over here. We have plenty of time, and uh, I'll see you folks then. Thank you for listening to the Beyond the Pearls podcast from Inside the Boards. This podcast is executive produced by Christopher Brightigan and Dr. Patrick Beeman. This podcast is intended for educational purposes only and is not medical advice. Ars longa, vita brevis.